Amen. And thank you, Matt, and for all of our students and young people for leading us forward like that. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. Those of you who have been around Bethel for a while, you might know that in the month of August, we like to sort of pause and do a little bit of a family meeting, sort of family business, a little bit of a casting of who we are and what we're doing here. So I want to be very, very brief about this because it's my sense that for most of you, this is not the first time you've ever been in church, and so you might have a whole other set of expectations of what church is supposed to do and be and be like. Perhaps you heard me say this last week. We know that many people uh, who were in church last week don't make it back the following week. I always just assume that's because of the sermon, but here you all are anyway. So I want to run back through very quickly sort of who we are, what we're doing here, why we do what we do, because I want for that to be a foundation and a basis that establishes your understanding and appreciation of all the other things that we do and all the other things that we do not do. So let me start with this. What is the church? People have a lot of different backgrounds, traditional trajectories and streams of how they got to be in this place this morning of what church is. It's this thing and look inside and there's all the people and I don't know how all that goes anymore. But what actually is the essence and the nature of the church? Theologically, biblically, the church is the new covenant community of the spirit. The Spirit of God indwells every believer at new birth, and that community of people who enjoy and experience the indwelling Spirit is the church. There was no church in the Old Testament because there was no permanent indwelling of the Spirit on anybody in the Old Testament. The church is a New Testament phenomenon. It is the body of Christ, the people of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. And so when we look at one another, we don't want to just go, yeah, those are the people that I happen to go to church with, although that's true. We look at one another and say, those are the people that are enjoying and experiencing the new covenant blessings. And because of that, we have community together. So that's what the church is. What precisely is the church then trying to accomplish? We get it directly from Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. It was not advice. It was not a recommendation, nor was it a suggestion. It is Jesus, the risen God-man, back from the dead, never more to die, said, go make disciples. And they went... Yeah, I don't, uh, how about a a cakewalk? No, 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 no. Disciples, how are we going to do that? Teaching them, baptizing, everything that I have taught you. So that's the mission of the church is to make disciples. That involves teaching, education, it involves mission, it involves evangelism, all those kinds of things. That's the mission of the church. The ministries of the church, we don't offer a menu of here are all our available ministries. We simply say the ministries are the way the church accomplishes its mission. Various ministries with children, with women's Bible studies, with men's groups, with life groups, with discipleship, with care and bereavement groups, with meal trains, those kinds of things. Those are the ministries. They are simply the avenues and the processes through which we accomplish our mission. Very, very ruthlessly organized that way. That helps us to know, hey, this is a really cool and a neat thing, but it doesn't help us make disciples. So we're not going to spend resources or time or thought share in that arena. We're just going to go after ministries that help us accomplish our mission, which is to make disciples because we're the new covenant community of the Spirit. Okay? Then there's the gifts. Well, what are the gifts? The gifts, very simply, are how you accomplish the ministries. How has God equipped, edified, poured into you so that you are the ones that are actually doing the ministries of the church? That's how we are organized. That's what we're all about. Now, uniquely... 
We believe that that is true of every church. But uniquely, in our setting, in our context, what is our unique vision that we believe God has called Bethel Bible Church in East Texas to be? We're not saying it is the only way to do church. We're saying it's the only way that we know how to do church. So we're not, we're not throwing rocks at anybody else in any other part of town, across the street, and any other part of the nation. We're not saying it's the only way to do church. We're saying it's the only way that we understand God has called us to do church. And so we have a vision statement that is essentially distilled down to three different categories. One is growing communities. We want to be intentionally othering. I don't know how many church people think in this way deliberately and diligently that they are to be intentionally othering at all times. I would contend there is no organization in the cosmos that is optimized to intentionally other like the church is. So growing communities, both in the church with small clusters of people gathered together around God's word, but also in the community. We want to seek the welfare, the shalom of the city, because when the city prospers, we prosper. So growing communities, building leaders, intentionally raising up people who will intentionally raise up people who will intentionally raise up other people. That's been the model of the church for the last 2,000 years. We want to have deliberate intent about that. Thirdly, living generously. When people ask, what are the people of Bethel Bible Church all about? I want for that to be how we're known, how we're characterized. That's our jersey. Because we wear the gospel jersey that says, God has redeemed us to himself and to one another. Because of that, we are unleashed. We are freed to give our lives away and all that we steward and manage. So to grow communities, to build leaders, and to live generously. Now, how do we practically and tactically do that? Our strategy. We really have a threefold strategy for how we execute that vision. And there's nothing new under the sun. It doesn't have a whole lot of sizzle in cellophane. It's pretty much just a slap of steak what the church has been doing for 2,000 years, and we believe it's biblical, and if we're wrong, we're going to see Jesus one day whose eyes are like blazing fire, and he's going to say, no, you should have had more cakewalks. And I'll go, my bad, but we tried. <laughs> How do we do that vision in our context? Number one, we cling to principally and primarily on expository preaching, teaching the text of God in context. Not using a bunch of Bible verses to amplify and enforce my ideas. I got a lot of griefs with you people, and the Bible says that you should. That, that has no power. Nobody's ever been transformed ever by that. What is the full counsel of God? What Paul tells the elders from Ephesus, I want you to teach the full counsel of God. And the only way we get that is by teaching the text in context. Non-negotiably, that's who we are, that's what we do. Number two, multi-site model. We commute to communities. We're not just inviting everyone to come to some centralized monolithic structure. We believe that God has called us because of discipleship, because of localized leadership, shepherding, teaching, and preaching. We don't just flat screen one particular speaker because that would be an abomination if you've seen any of our pastors. No, no, we do it live in front of you at each one of our campuses because we believe that the local church is to be loved, led, guided, and guarded in the real to the extent that we can. So we do expository preaching and teaching, our multi-site model, and intentional missions. We do not give to some massive, centralized, organized, cooperative missions program. We support people. We care intensely about four categories of missions. We care about church planting. We care about unreached people groups. We care about reaching international students who have come to our city and our state. We also care about local generosity initiatives. You may have heard already 
about our art day where a silent auction is currently happening that will go to uh, benefit an organization and ministry in town called For the Silent. We've known them for 12 years now. They do an incredible work, a hard work, a heartbreaking work, but it's a part of what our community needs here in downtown Tyler, and so we get to be a part of that. That's what we're here about. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. And so I just always want to give everyone the opportunity, if you need to hit the ejection button and go, you know what? I was just here for the covered dish. We do that sometimes too. But that's not principally and primarily what we are about. We are the new covenant community of the Spirit. And what we want to do is to study God's Word by His Spirit together. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to do precisely that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the morning. We called upon you many times this morning already in prayer, and so I do so again, Father, that you would give me economy and efficiency in teaching this wonderful passage. I pray all this, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke and in chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, unsurprisingly, it's about Jesus. It's Actually, it's all about Jesus, all of these letters functionally and practically are read. It's all about Jesus. It's all inspired by his spirit. But we're in Luke chapter 4, and a couple Sundays ago, we said that the theme of the gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the man. You might remember that Matthew is writing to say that Jesus is the rightful king. Mark is saying that Jesus is the suffering servant foretold in Isaiah. Luke is saying that Jesus is the man. Do not forget his humanity. He loved, he cried, he wept, he experienced pain. He even experienced anxieties in a way. John is writing to say that Jesus is divine, that he is God. And so we started a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 4. We said that Jesus is the man as he went through his temptation in the wilderness, led there by the Spirit. Last week, we learned that Jesus gets it done. At the inauguration of his ministry, as they didn't like what he was saying about taking his messiahship to the nations, they tried to throw him off of a mountain. That's usually an indicator that people are displeased with you. He pushes right through. Jesus gets it done, which takes us now, hopefully, Lord willing, to the end of Luke chapter 4. I'm just going to walk through this comment in line where necessary. Luke chapter 4, beginning in, let's call it verse 31. And I want you to see all the different ways that Jesus enters into conflict with that which is broken. Different bastions or strongholds of evil. And what we're going to find through this passage, our big idea for the morning goes very succinctly like this. Jesus conquers every form of evil. Now, some of you in this room hear that and go, well, that's nice. I'm glad he does that. Somebody should. That's, yeah, good. (laughs) Then there's the rest of you who are experiencing all different kinds of evil, and you need to hear this. Jesus conquers every form of evil. Let's watch. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Let me explain real fast. You might remember last week he was in Nazareth, his hometown, where they knew him. That Jesus, yeah, he made me a bar stool. That thing fell over all the time. No, it was actually the best bar stool ever. It's probably still there. I don't know. But he said that he was going to take his messianess to the Gentiles as well, and they decided to kill him. Jesus said, no, I'm good, and he just walks right past them. So he relocates his home and the base of his ministry to a city called Capernaum. It's on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's not an accident. Capernaum was a marvelously central city. It's not Jerusalem, but it is a super central city culturally and socially. It's on what was called the Great Trunk Road. 
all the way from Egypt to Mesopotamia, you would take the Great Trunk Road. And so all of the commerce, all of the trade was happening on the Great Trunk Road. Or you would take the Via Maris, which was along the Mediterranean coast, and the Romans would tax you through the face. So Capernaum was right there where Matthew was a tax collector on the Great Trunk Road as Egypt was trading with all these different merchants who were coming from China and India, right? All was happening in Capernaum. Jesus was saying, I'm taking this thing big time. And as was his custom, he's teaching in the synagogue. This this sort of global, or not global, this sort of communal uh, civic gathering space. Yes, they gathered on the Sabbath to talk about Scripture, but they just gathered there, period. The idea of them gathering only on Saturdays, Shabbat, to study Torah would have been strange. For them, there was no distinction. They were always together. It was their central meeting place, which is very, very similar to what we're trying to be about downtown. Since we're the new covenant community of the Spirit, we want to be the church in this context seven days a week, not merely between 10 and noon on a Sunday. So Jesus is given permission. He's invited to speak in this synagogue in Capernaum. Now, this is one of those places, Capernaum, you can go today, and the synagogue is almost perfectly maintained. You can walk around through it. The first time I ever walked through there with Susan, mm, gosh, six years ago or so, we walked into the main chamber of the synagogue, and there was a black adder coiled up right there in the synagogue, which got our attention. And our guide was like, ha, 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 someone's playing a joke. That's a black poisonous snake. That's not, that's not a real snake. And then it moved. And so we did too. We all, beep, beep, beep. It was bad. Fortunately, it was very cold and the snake was not very feisty. But you can go and see this in Capernaum today. Now, let me pick up where we left off here. Chapter 4, verse 31. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished. Perhaps your translation says, and they were amazed. That's a Hebraism. It's a, it's a figure of speech in Hebrew. As the people would hear the prophet Micah or Isaiah or Habakkuk, as they would speak oracle of God, the people would be amazed because that speech was always confirmed with some sort of sign or wonder. Some sort of miracle would say, this is from God. And the people were amazed going, we think we know this dude. He's, it's like Jesus from Longview. Well, from Nazareth. But He's doing these incredible signs and wonders that are confirming. What are those signs and wonders? Well, you have to read Matthew and Mark as well because this story is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. We hear about healings and all kinds of things. We're just going to get one little vignette here. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. They couldn't figure this out. How does this guy know so much? He is not literally. He's not lettered. See, in those days, the way you got access into a synagogue or into any sort of teaching environment is that you had to align yourself with the rabbinic school. You say, I'm going to follow Hillel, or I'm going to follow Shmuel, and I'm going to do what they say. I'm going to go where they go, and I'm just going to mimic and parrot everything that they say. And so you will hear these guys that would walk around. They go, you've heard it said from Hillel, but I am of Shmuel, and I tell you such and thus. But Jesus walks around, and he goes, you've heard it said, I don't care from who, I tell you. And he quotes no other human ever. In anything that Jesus ever says, he never quotes another human unless he's quoting a writer of Scripture. He never, ever quotes another person. And they can't believe that's not how this is done. It's like he's quoting from heaven as if he's actually been there. Bing! Precisely. This is why Jesus does what Jesus does. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, I'm just going to say, that's weird. Nobody in the synagogue seemed to be bothered. Like, oh, yeah, he comes every Sunday or Saturday in this case. Like, there was a guy who just happened to be the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. 
Now, I'm going to say some things that are probably provocative, and that's okay. You can respond at Mike at Bethelbible.com. <laughs> Apparently, this guy has been permitted to be present in the synagogue and is essentially unnoticed because he's a non-factor, because he's not encountering any resistance whatsoever by what's happening in that synagogue. That synagogue that is a bastion of saying that you have to work harder to try better to do more so that God will love you. I don't know what you think about when you think about demonic activity. If you're thinking about pentagrams and black candles and goat's heads and Marilyn Manson and Abba or whatever, I don't know what you think about. It's not that. It is any sort of activity that pushes people away from grace. We encounter it every single day. Oh, we look for the, the super strange and the freaky and the occultish weirdness and the whatever. No, no, no. Demonic activity is that which pushes people away from grace and to self. We saw it on a documentary just this past week. You have to get all your negatives and you have to do all these things and maybe the gods will accept it and perhaps they'll accept your, your positives. But how do you know? You don't. That's demonic activity. There was a man who had been the spirit of, young, of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Now, verse 34 drives me crazy. This is a bad translation. Your Bible translation might have it, at least it does in the ESV, as ha, H-A, wrong. This is not a term of defiance. This is demon speak for, and I quote, ah! Sorry. It's E-A, not H-A. The translators have decided to say, oh, there's a showdown. No, it's not. This demon is terrified. He's not defiant. He's not going, ha, I know who you are. No, it's not that at all. He shrieks in fear. How do we know that? What have you to do with us? It's another Hebraism. What are me and thee? That's what you would hear in the Old Testament. What have, what have I to do with you? Oh, he knows. Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting. You know who the greatest theologians in the Bible are? Demons. They know everything. Now, they always deceive men about God, and they always lie to God, but when they talk about God in the presence of God, they're dead on. They are exactly correct. And you've got to be a good theologian if you're going to be a deceiver because you might screw up and tell someone the truth. And so you've got to know all angles of the truth. Right? He knows exactly who this Jesus is. What have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to, and the word is destroy. The, the term is apollyon. What Satan himself will be called in the book of Revelation, the destroyer. To lay to the ground and scatter the stones as to apollyon. Jesus, I know why you're here. You've come to destroy all of our evil. But Jesus rebuked him. You might underline that word. You're going to see that word three times in this passage. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent. Come out of him. Like you kind of expect the text to go, and Jesus, turning the ring of power, tore open his shirt, stood up and flexed. No, he just, get out, shut up. Or in other words, like how my first three dating relationships went. Get out, shut up. <laughs> like, Jesus sweateth not. He, Shut up, get out. And it was just that quick and easy. We have this thing that there's this idea that there's, oh, boy, the evil is so evil, but, oh, but Jesus is a hero. Oh, no, no, no. It's not even close. Rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the person down, a super significant text. 
You see, because Jesus is always described as a shepherd who reaches down, nurtures, loves, and shows compassion, empathy, care, concern, touch. Here's the great lie of the demonic appeal. You think it's going to work out. But when he's done with you, he throws you down, discards you like rubbish. And by the way, if I may, when I see Christians treating other Christians in that way, that is demonic. And so we have to wage against it because there's so much at stake. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. And this is again to that, that sign of wonder, like, who is this guy? They're all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. This guy had been in the epicenter of truth and religion for who knows, maybe his whole life, and no religion had done him any good. But the word of God freed him. Please don't let that escape your heart and your mind. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus conquers every form of evil, and he's not even trying hard. Keep that in mind. This is what Luke is trying to tell us because he's the man, and he gets it done. He conquers every form of evil. Now we're going to pivot. We're still in the city of Capernaum. And he arose, and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. This is Simon Peter, who Peter gets renamed. His name is Shimon, but Jesus renames him Rocky because he names him as he will be, not as he actually is. Entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Those who loved her interceded for her. I love that. Now, this is sort of lost on us. This woman is the lowest of the social scale. She's a widow. She's older. She's sick. She can't go to synagogue. She can't even serve Jesus who's in town. She's helpless and hopeless and hapless, and so they intercede on her behalf. Listen to what Jesus does. Jesus stood over and said, how dare you bother me with this? Don't you know who I am? I got like a thing to do over in, you know, that place. No. Jesus stood over her and rebuked. It's the exact same word. He rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose <laughs> and began to serve them. This is so good. He rebuked it. No, I am not saying that every fever is a demon. I'm saying, what's the difference? It's opposition. We live in a fallen world against the grain, uphill into the wind. But Messiah has come, and he is showing that he is the one that undoes it. He has landed, C.S. Lewis said. The rightful king has come, and we are to be about his campaign of sabotage. As Jesus in little pockets and little vignettes undoes and recapitulates the fallenness of the world, both with an actual demon and with just the fallenness of disease. He, did, he stood over and rebuked the fever and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, keep in mind, this is on the Sabbath. So they don't do much. They can't move around a whole lot. But as soon as the sun begins to set, those people are like, <clears throat> here they go. They can't wait to grab their friends and their family members and get to Jesus. As soon as Shabbat sets, here they come. They hook them. Now, when the sun was sitting, all those who had any uh, and who had, had, were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, "You are the Son of God!" But he rebuked them. There's that word again: "Shush up, you! Shut up! Get out! Shut up! Get out!" 
He rebuked them and they would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So why doesn't Jesus just tell these demons, hey, speak, fool. Tell them all who I am. No, no, this is what we call the messianic mystery or the messianic secret. Way back in John chapter 6, after he feeds the 5,000 men and all the women and children, they tried to rush him, grab him, and put a crown on his head and make him a hero king right then and there. And he says, no, it's not why I've come. I didn't come to solve your economic problems. I didn't even come to solve your health problems. I've come to solve your sin and death problems. So he rebukes the demons and says, you're not going to spoil my time. I get it done because I'm the man because I conquer every form of evil. Verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. Even Jesus needed to have his tank refilled. And he didn't get much of a chance because they found out where he was. They were so desperate for what Messiah would do and bring and be. And would have kept him from leaving them. You can't leave Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? I can't. This is me. I would have been the first one. No, dude. No, dude. No. Stay in my house. You can drink my lemonade. Stay in my bed. Well, we'll wash the sheets first. But still, you got to stay here, Jesus. You're ours. You're making us happy. You're healing our sicknesses. You're throwing out demons. It's you, Jesus. We want you right here. Just here. Right here. Stay here with us in Capernaum. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We don't interpret that as just in the southern kingdom, but clearly in the north as well, all over Galilee. So what do we take away from these three, or these passages, these little vignettes? Number one goes like this. It's not a fair fight. When I say that Jesus conquers every form of evil, please understand it's not a fair fight. Most of us have grown up in a context, either through Disney or Star Wars, that we think there's this even match between good and evil. There's the dark side of the force, there's the good side of the force. And you need a hero to rise and sort of channel a little bit more of the good than the dark, and that's how we win you know, in this age, and we move on. Or there's Maleficent who rises up and she's got a skin problem and she's also a dragon. That's awkward. And then Prince Philip finds a way to knock her out, right? But no, we are all Western in our mindset. We're dualists. We cling to the Eastern notion of yin and yang, that there's black and there's white, and there's just the right balance, and that's all we have to try to maintain and live in and get through and get by. That is a non-biblical notion. The Bible knows nothing about duality, of the balance of good and evil. There is God who is sovereign, who is good, who is glorious, and here's really good news, he's gracious, and then there's this insignificant single-cell organism called Satan who for a fleeting moment in the eternal landscape is permitted to do what he does on a leash so that God will have his glory. We must never forget that it is just, you know, like or even some of sectarian Christian religions, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons teach that it is Jesus fighting against his brother Satan. Not even close. Satan knows that Jesus is creator. Satan and the demons know that he is the holy one who will bring them down to rubble and nothing. They know this, but they will fight like hell until it's over. But it's not a fair fight. God is sovereign. We must encourage one another daily with these words. Number two, we are wounded healers, all of us. Just like Peter's mother-in-law. What did she want? She wanted to get up and serve others. 
Jesus redeems her, brings her back to physical strength, brings her back to life. And the first thing she wants to do is to love on the people of God. They didn't say love on back then. That's a KTEL 70s jazz flute expression that we came up with in church. No, not love on. She wanted to serve the people of God, the people who were following Jesus. And I think she always remembered with empathy and compassion, there I was, cooking alive with this fever that no one could save me, no one could bring me release of my affliction, but Jesus touched me. And all she wanted to do for the rest of her life is serve the people of God. And so when we begin to be frustrated with all those people around us who were just so, mm, they're so extra grace required, just remember that you are the extra grace required person for probably half the congregation. And that's okay. But we're all wounded healers. Jesus has touched us, removed the affliction of our own death, separation from God, and shame. And now we get to love the people around Jesus. Can you imagine how she glowed? Oh, not from a fever, but because she was serving Jesus' people. Thirdly, Jesus is for everyone. We have a tendency to say, even as I started off this morning, with, hey, this is our vision, what we want to be about Bethel and Bethel downtown. But we have to remember that Jesus is not just about downtown Tyler. He's all over East Texas. He's all over Persia. He's all over sub-Saharan Africa and China and in South America. And we have to do all that we can to support our partners here, there, and everywhere. We want to be very intentional, never just build high thick walls in which we can sort of cower inside and say, well, the world out there is going to heck in a handbasket. As long as we get, keep the internet on, we'll be okay. That's not a Jesus-loving, Jesus-living kind of life. Jesus is for everyone. And he conquers every form of evil. And there will come a day when he will conquer all of it finally and fully. Why hasn't he yet? Why hasn't he yet? Aren't you glad that he hasn't? What if he'd conquered every form of evil 40 years ago? I would have spent eternity in hell. What if he'd have conquered it 1,500 years ago? But he is good. He's not slow as something. He is patient, not wanting any to perish. And so this is why Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, I go into the strong man's house. I bind the strong man. That's Satan. And I plunder his possessions. Who is that? That's the people who need the gospel. And until that's complete, we go boldly into harm's way. No, I'm not Jesus, but I love him, and he loves me. Now, that changes the way I look at the world. I live in the world, and I love in the world. What this world needs is Jesus, and what this world gets is Jesus' people. So let's be the church. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and, yes, Father, to one another. We pray, God, that you would be honored to continue to move by your Spirit among us, your people, that those outside these walls are on a different screen, that you would do for them what you have done for us, that they would sense and know that, God, you see us, you know us, and you love us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that is still trying to simply outweigh their good over their bad, would you release them from that? Would you rebuke that error and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son? We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.